Welcome to RPG Ramblings with Jeff Jones. This is a weekly show exploring the various details of the tabletop RPG hobby through discussions with interesting people. Today, Ben Lawrence joins me to discuss his success for the ZineQuest 3 project that he had and the ups and downs of having a Kickstarter that achieved that level of success. We talk shop about Kickstarter fulfillment, and we take a short delve into his projects. For those that are interested, I created a Patreon. Even if you don't pledge, you can still follow and get free content. Link is in the show notes. The Dreamlands beckon us, sisters and brothers. It is time to get rambling. Hello, Ben. Hi, Jeff. It's been a while. You were the you were you and um, and um, you were one of my first. Well, actually, you were my first guest. You and Tim Shorts were uh, episode number one. Yeah, I re- I remember I remember well. It has been a little while. Yeah, so I thought it's kind of apropos, and so I have to finish it off. I think with uh, with ending with uh, in the year with with Tim and yourself as well. So I've been wanting to talk to you for a while, uh, mainly because uh, you you have this we'll call it line uh, through Old Tan's door. So you had a Kickstarter a couple years ago, it did pretty well, and then you did a Kickstarter for Zine Quest Three, where you just kind of like continued on with that line in the series, the adventure. Um, more products, old products. Um, and I think what was astounding was, I mean, you hit $50,000 for funding. And, and what I noticed is it's not that you delivered one zine because I, I backed at a level where it's like, you know what, even though I bought a PDF of this, I really just want these all in physical form. Uh, so I, I went and <laughs> said, give it all to me, Ben. And then I started looking through the different, I mean, there's different options that a person could buy in at. I mean, you had multiple, multiple levels and add-ons. And so anyway, I guess, what was it like going through? I mean, I mean that, that kept going. So when you, was there a certain point where the success level got to the point where you're like, that you got concerned? Yeah, so uh, one one tiny correction, because actually I think it, it might be relevant later. Actually, it was my first Kickstarter. I had sold the zine with some oh. success prior to that, but only through social media. Okay, so okay. That's, that, that's one dimension to this. But uh, yeah, I mean, mainly when the Kickstarter was running and uh, it did, by you know, by by my by my lights. I mean, I know that we have these mega kickstarters and mothership one yeah. and a half million dollars <laughs> yeah. and things like that. There's nothing, not nothing like that. But for you know, a, a pretty kind of you know modest, you know, basically um, a, a pretty modest single authored in the main zine. I mean, Gus did write a companion adventure, so I guess there 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 was that in the mix too but um it was a lot it was uh, um, more success than i thought i was going to have and mainly during the campaign itself i was um happy about that although it creates a kind of crazy energy because you are just checking all the time even if that's not how you want to be in life you just you know constantly checking and checking and, and you become so neurotic still, you become neurotic and you have to figure out stretch goals and you have to do all these things and and things and uh but mainly during the kickstarter i was um re- really pretty happy uh about how how well it was doing but i will say that afterwards fulfillment was quite difficult um it it ate up a, a bigger I mean, I guess I didn't really know what to predict because I'd never done anything even remotely on that scale. Right. But it ate up a much bigger chunk of my life than when I had sold a much smaller number of zines just through social media. And I kind of thought economies of scale would solve a lot of those problems. But the truth was that that, um, they didn't. and well, so, I think there's a point where the curve starts going backwards. <laughs> like, yeah, it, it, so it it took over more of my life than I was comfortable with in retrospect. And so by the end, I got pretty. Um, it just made me think about how I, I would handle it next time. But so so yeah. So in other words, I just was kind of elated while it was happening. But then afterwards, when um, it started to become clear more 
how how very much there was involved in fulfillment. Um, it it <clears throat> the ch- ch- chickens came home to roost a little bit. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I it kind of hit me too. It's like you know you um, you live in a house that's got finite space. Yeah. You share space with other human beings. You, uh, this whole project, you, you weren't just doing the, I'm just going to print stuff at Mixum route. (laughs) So all I could imagine was explain to your wife why you got all these packages. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we were lucky to have a kind of attic space that was, it's just this kind of, it was going to be like a master bedroom, but then we decided we didn't want to move up there. So it ended up being this kind of empty empty space that's kind of nice um that like the kids playing and stuff and so i took that over and uh yeah that was a really unsightly mess but i mean at least we had something that was out of the main well that's good bustle of things and i was able to store a lot of boxes in the basement but it was you know i don't want to minimize it 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 did take over a lot and it was a huge eyesore um you know, for a very long time. Yeah. But, but you weren't getting the stink guy from, uh, from Julie, your wife. Did no, you <laughs> we, no. Um, in a way, actually it was worse when, um, in, in back when I, in the days of yore, when I was folding and assembling the zines myself, Yeah. that, um, my setup was more centrally located, like in the middle of the house. And actually, it was worse then. It was better that I just have like a kind of chamber I could go to away from everyone where you, you learned your boxes. lesson, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Try to take it out of the middle of everything. <laughs> yeah, because you you went with, uh, you know, special paper. So you had to order that paper in. I'm sure then you had to you're able to get then you had to go take it to the printer to get it printed. And so there's a lot of um, for you. It's probably less of like shipping, but also just you handling, you know, the material uh, was quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, the shipping is the main thing, but yes, I mean, I drove two hilarious loads of paper in, you know, what was like a low, a low rider kind of (laughs) SUV with all the seats (laughs) down because it was really at the maximum weight capacity. I think, (laughs) I mean, in fact, I was probably really pushing it the first time. Um, and then, you know, the, the second time it was lighter, but it was like pretty backbreaking, but that, that was a one, one cent over deal. Whereas the, the packaging and the shipping and the printing labels and the stuffing zines and the wrapping things and the doing this and the doing that, um, just went on and on and on. (laughs) Well, I know that, um, you know, when I did Scoundrels, there was the option where some people get two, uh, some people got three, depends what they ordered. But even though I only had a small number of people actually do two, the rest were all uh, three, uh, the, the full three, it still kind of made me paranoid that I was going to mess up and somehow ship people that were supposed to get three, only get two, more so than the other way around. But you, you, have, you offered a number of levels where I think I would have, I don't know, it, it's, was that stressful trying to make sure that you mail the proper number and the proper content to the people? Uh, I, yes. I mean, although I, I, so Kickstarter makes that relatively easy. The thing about it, um, given the way they store the backer information, which you can sort by pledge level and so on, but right. the p- part of it that was harder, um, I w- much harder to keep track of. And they, I think Kickstarter does a much worse job with this. I don't know how you would do it, but I just, they don't do it very well, which is I, I did offer people the option of adding things on. And the reason was simple. There were a lot of people who bought the first one of my zine, but not the second one or the right. second one, but not the first one. And right. so there were people who were trying to fill in these holes and I thought, well, I'll just make it an add-on rather than correspond with people individually. And probably that was better, but it it's not that information is really spread across a giant spreadsheet in Backerkit. I not Backerkit. I didn't use Backerkit in the Kickstarter right. Backer report. 
Right. And so I missed like a lot of things there and had to send things separately. Uh, and I just heard yesterday that I put two copies of one thing and missed another thing and someone's order um, who just discovered it now. So, you, you know, yeah, I made a, I made mistakes. It was, I was basically, I hired someone to help me a tiny bit, but it was basically just me. And so at a certain point, things just start swimming and as careful as you try to be, you know, it's, um, there are limits to like attention. And I will say people were very forgiving. Actually, you know, I try to correspond in a timely way with someone if I mess something up and try to um, make it right quickly. I mean, luckily, because enough people backed it, it was, it felt like, always felt like I could afford to cover my mistakes. So it didn't have that terrible feeling like, oh my God, I have right. to ship something to Europe again. You know, it's like, no, I can handle that. I mean, it's okay. It's just like a cost of doing business. But um, but no, yeah, I made mistakes. Not as many as I would have thought I, I did, but I definitely did, and I <clears throat> had to set yeah. them right one by one. You, you, what you got to do is you got to set up a process. You got to be methodical. Yeah. I even mark packages a certain way just to keep them differentiated. I just really tried to, you know, because the other thing is too is I went with you know with a uh, uh, pirate uh, ship, pirate ship, pirate. Yep. But you know. I just thought it's it's real easy if you're doing different ones. If you're not careful, you could just start because you can automatically just print out labels from a previous you know setup. You could easily like do the postage for something that was that weighed less without really thinking and print out stuff that weighs more. I don't know what effect that would have, but I mean, there's there's a lot of complexity to to managing that whole thing that I think it's you don't really appreciate until it's time to actually do it. Should should we talk about Pirate Ship and how sure. that interacts with Kickstarter? So I use Pirate Ship for the first time. And I mean, I really think people should know about Pirate Ship if they don't. I don't know what your experience was. Uh, how how did you find Pirate Ship? I don't know. I think it was I think it had to it had to have been mentioned by somebody on the RPG Zine group. I think it's the only way that I would know of it. Yeah. Right. So I, I think I learned about it the same way. I learned about it not long before the Kickstarter began. I, I was new to it, but um, I did find it amazing, an amazing service. I mean, it's not integrated with Kickstarter, so that's too bad. It is integrated with the web um, store platform I use, Big Cartel, which is amazing. If I get an order in Big Cartel, zoop, I can just... You know, it shows up right. in, in in Pirate Ship. I just click a button, it shows up, and I print a label over and done. But in Kickstarter, it wasn't that way. I had to, you know, import the the labels. Um, uh, but I still found it such an amazing service. I mean, it cut, cut costs really tremendously. It kept track of all the shipping. It notified, oh, yeah. sent the, the emails to people. It's free to use. I mean, that is, you don't have to do a subscription. You pay, of course, to buy the labels, but they're at that significantly reduced price compared to um, what someone who's not using a service is 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 paying through U.S. the United States Postal well, Service. Well, I think for me, is it didn't time. save me. Yeah. It didn't save me a dime, but it saved me a lot of time. Hmm. Why didn't it save you any money? It saved. Well, me I don't a lot think because I was doing media mail. Hmm. So I don't think Got it, it. it didn't. Yeah, so I didn't, but but the, but buying that thermal printer and it just zig 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 zig, and all of a sudden I'm printing out labels like crazy, and it's like perfect. Yeah, but no, you it's gonna have a hundred. Uh, yeah, a hundred labels come out of that thing. Yeah, yeah it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and I think, but you're right because I think that what's nice about it is you know no matter what you're shipping, it will it will try and find the cheapest price, but it. But it also remembers, so that's nice because all of a sudden, you know, somebody else says, "Hey, I want one." You go right to that package because what's important is, you know, different packages weigh different amounts, so it's like it already remembers. So you can just go ahead and 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 have it print out that particular label quickly right. without having to re-enter everything. That's right. So you, so for example, for my tiers and then for stray things, for my tiers, I would create different, 
you know, preset packages with the names of the different tiers, and I would enter the dimensions and the weight. I the reason it saved me a lot of money is that I couldn't ship medium mail because the way I've done my zines, they're not eligible for media mail because they have detachable covers, which are not right. eligible and because they contain encounter cards, which are not eligible. And so, um, and because they're kind of a, you know, sort of luxury, I mean, because people are, people also want to receive them intact too. So I ended up having to mail them in packages um, and the package price for you know, like retail packages or whatever, it, it's just much lower if you're getting the business rate, which is basically what they give. I think. Um, I never thought about exploring it that direction. I think I just assumed media mail is the cheapest. Yeah, media but, mail is is the cheapest. If you're using okay. media mail, it's all good. I <laughs> I just can't. I if I could, I would. A hundred percent. I just couldn't. So I had to. So then I'm paying very high um, prices and pirate ship was very helpful. And, oh, I and see. Right. the next time I do it, I'll be able to factor that in too when I'm charging people. I, I didn't have the, a full grasp of what the pricing for shipping was going to be. So I, I named a high, high numbers because I knew I would be doomed if I named too low a number. But now I'll be able to have a more accurate assessment if I do this again. Um, yeah, because they, they I think you did raise prices postal. It wouldn't have affected you, but I think uh, they did raise raise prices pre Christmas. Um, they did, yeah. <laughs> right, but it's it, you should factor. I think anybody that's doing a Kickstarter, especially the longer it's going to take to fulfill it, you might want to just add a little cushion in there for that. Yeah, I would give two pieces of advice about that. Uh, one piece of advice is, I definitely set the fulfillment date much too soon i had the zines all ready to go um i you know so i thought this won't be hard but it costs you nothing to just add a couple of months on because if you fulfill it early great people are delighted and you tell them up front when you're going to give it to them so there's no reason to make yourself jump through hoops to do it earlier and i i found it very hard i mean in truth I, I, I missed the deadline, but only by a couple of weeks, um, you know, and for some people, I, I got it during the, the window. It wasn't a big deal, but, it you know, I, I really had to race to do it. And so I think one thing is give yourself plenty of time. Give yourself two months more than you think you'll need. Uh, that's one thing. And another thing is um, um, just be careful about your pricing for shipping if you're not using backer kit. If you're building the shipping costs into the pledge levels, just be very, or you're, you have a ship, if you're doing shipping through Kickstarter's main platform, be very careful because if you um, make a mistake, you will eat the difference in price. So, you know, I was conservative and protected myself. I ended up charging people a higher rate than I would have liked. Um, but it, it did mean that I wasn't. I wasn't. I hadn't made some terrible error that ended up costing me huge amounts of money, and you have to protect yourself from that. So, with backer kit, um, did you ever have people not, um, I guess, pay? Uh, like it, it, it succeeded, but then then you had problems with people, yeah. like uh, paying for the backer kit. Like, do you think that delay caused a problem for some? Or, I mean, how does that work out? Right. So. Here, here are, let's let's explain to people a little bit how this works. So, um, actually, I didn't use backer kit. It just seemed like an extra level of complexity I didn't need. Oh, right. right. I might I might do it. I probably won't do it if I do do Kickstarter again. But I, I backer kit is like a separate integrated um, service you can sign up with that allows you to charge shipping and to uh, have people do add-ons after the campaign is completed. So that's what BackerKit does for people. It pushes shipping out of the campaign into the separate service, and it allows people also to do add-ons. And in that way, by pushing shipping out, it lets you give the actual cost of the shipping you know, to each person. And so it shields you sort of from the dangers of pegging it to a number and then 
realizing you made some mistake. So backer people really with big Kickstarters, people like BackerKit a lot. I didn't use it, um, but I did. But however, it is true. Here's something else people should know if they're going to do Kickstarter. I don't know how this works on other crowdfunding sites. Probably the same. But on Kickstarter, you know, you get charged only when it's completed. And that means that, uh, you know, there are some people who never get, never pay because they didn't enter information that, that works right. when, it, it, when the campaign ends. And then even weirder, there are some people who do pay, but they never tell you what their address is or fill out the, exactly. the survey. And then you email them and then sometimes they reply and then sometimes they don't. And I get how it happens. There are people who don't use Kickstarter a lot. And so they come around and they do the thing. And then a lot of time, pa you know, time passes and they're not. Like, yeah. But the attention. thing is with those people, I've sent emails out my personal email address and I've, you know, made the subject very clear, you know, like this isn't spam, but like, you know, but still people don't. Right. So one thing is another thing, if you're doing Kickstarter is you have to allot some, you, you have to know that you're, um, the, the ultimate amount of money you raise, you're going to get less than that. You're going to get less than that for two reasons. One, because Kickstarter charges a processing fee. And one, because some people won't pay. Um, in my case, it wasn't, those weren't that much money in total. Um, I wish I had numbers ready for you, but I don't. Oh no, um, it's but it's it, fine. But it's but you do have to be ready for that. You have to be ready if you're going to run a Kickstarter. You have to be ready for the fact that you're not actually going to get all of the money. I mean, there's the other issue of taxes, which I haven't yet. Um, but you know, which is coming. I have to, you know, <laughs> which is coming for me to deal with. But there's 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 a tax issue, of course. Everyone knows that. But there's also right. a, a fact that you don't get paid because some people's payments fail. And then there's this weird fact that there's just some people out there and you, you really want to get them the thing and, and they're at it. Right. And you have two hard. choices at that point. You could leave it hanging and consider, you know what? I got their money and wait for them to finally respond. Or I did what uh, Phil Reed said and just refund them their money. Cause it's just not worth having that. Cause I just don't want that hanging over my head. I think that's totally the right way to go. Yeah. I, I, you know, in my case, it was such a, I wish I had had that advice. Um, I think it would have helped me. I, I, you know, there may be somebody even out there who doesn't have their thing because they never feel, and I don't even know, you know, yeah. now, and I wish I had just, you know, after a certain point, yeah, hold the plug. Yeah, exactly. It's just like, it's because you know they want it. I mean, that's just it. It's like I know this guy wants it. You know, it's just, but it just, it's just to have that that for me, just that thinking behind in my head of that. I want that. I want the Kickstarter to be done. I just want it to be done so I can move on with my life because I don't want to keep dragging this Kickstarter. Like, uh, what, what was that movie? It was a was a Robert De Niro? Uh, he carried this this armor, drag it through the the jungle because of his sins. <laughs> it's like. Right. I just want to cut it loose. It's like, yeah. So uh, it's, yeah. And another thing I noticed was also going back to piracy, which is kind of weird, is it does, it tries to figure out as you're typing the address. I had somebody whose address was I Street, the letter I. And it autocorrected to first or one. And then it came back to me. I'm like, no. It's like, yeah. No, it's got, there are a lot of hazards. I mean, all these things are like that. It's like, um, there's no way right now we could tell somebody all the things they would learn by going through it. I mean, there are just so many little things. And, but I do think once you do it once, like, you know how it works. And I do think that knowledge kind of, or I'm hopeful that it carries forward. Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, and for me, it definitely, I had some obvious changes. And one was that, the, you know, because I think one of the, biggest surprises was that i could not just take packages like a stack of 50 um packages to the post office 
hand it to them. And, uh, and then they could just, uh, even though I had labels, they not pirate ship, but just regular labels print that they couldn't just take and process that I had to stand there while they won at a time. And it would take them like two or three, four minutes for each package to do it. And I like, at that point, it's like, no, I need to do pirate ship so I can print, preprint those labels, send it to them and walk away. Yeah, no, thank you. The, the, actually, the most important thing about pre-printing your labels, paying some servants like Pirate Ship that will print out prepaid labels for you. This, sorry, this is the crucial piece of information that we <laughs> didn't, why, why Pirate Ship? It's not just that it keeps track of things. It's not just yeah. that it sends attracting email to people. It's not just that your, your thermal label printer will spit out an incredible number at an incredible rate of labels that you can just slap on things. The single best thing about it by an order of magnitude <laughs> is that you don't have to stand in line in the post office. You carry them in, you drop them off. I mean, there were problems during the pandemic. You know, I had some that didn't get processed and sometimes they wouldn't get entered into the system and only later. We all know the postal service was struggling, um, but it was amazing. I mean, that line is killer and you just can't do it if you have a large number of orders and, and they don't like it because the people in the post office know you're not supposed to do that. You know, they don't always tell you what you're supposed to do, but, but, but what you're supposed to do if you're running a business and you have a lot of orders is you get one of these services, you preprint your labels, you put it on. And then you just stick it in the place you're supposed to stick it in the post office. And some person comes and picks it up and takes it right out to some fulfillment center they have. Um, so that for me was the biggest deal, especially because I have a love-hate relationship with my local post office. Well, see, um, we, my post office, I live in a town that's only like 2,000 people. So it's a, it's a tiny post office. So they're not anywhere staffed for that. So you could go there and maybe they just don't have another, they need, they need two people there. If they don't have two people, they're not going to do it. Or I can do 10 of them. Okay, come back tomorrow. Right. I mean, you know, <laughs> the terrible thing is like, I live in Chicago, so way not a town of 2000 people. And I live in a neighborhood that has a pretty good post office. And yet, I mean, the truth is, it's the same. I mean, some days there's just one person there. And it's just like, this could never happen. I mean, this just isn't going to happen. I mean, so it really is important that there are, there's just somebody who comes you know, and takes on like a dolly, a cart, like huge stacks of things that people bring in. And that's what these pre-printed labels give you access to. It's like, you just don't have to deal with any of that anymore. Um, and so there, there is a little peace of mind you trade because when you do stand in that line, they enter it into the system right then and there. And so it's happening. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas if you put it on this pile, there's like an act of faith and then there are, if you do enough of them, um, you will eventually have a problem. But, you know, it's, it's so worth it. It's, it's so, so worth it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's the biggest bottleneck. I mean, the biggest bottleneck is the post office line. Yeah, yeah, I think if I had to buy a thermal printer for every Kickstarter, I still would pay that cost. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll just build that right into the <laughs> structure because... Oh my, oh my, oh my goodness. No, no, it's, it's so, it's, it's amazing. When you realize, I mean, I was selling them myself and I just didn't know you could do that because I was just one guy who through social media was like selling these zines and I just didn't know, you know, and like they, they would give me these weird looks like, why are you bringing in all these packages? And I just didn't even know there was another way you could do it. And when I learned, I was just like, what? You know, it just blew my mind. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, yeah, if you're going to do any sort of numbers, it, it is definitely, you both need to get the pirate ship and a thermal printer. Yeah. And, um, and I think probably any thermal printer is better than no thermal printer, because you can print them out on your, because I, I, I thought about it. I started doing the calculation, like I could print it on my, on my regular printer, and then take it on eight and a half by 11, but then, um, but then I'd need to cut. <laughs> the right. two labels out it's can you like, imagine <laughs> right versus having like a hundred come out of the machine at once that you could just peel off in sequential order and put right on i mean yeah no there's there's no comparison yeah yeah so that that was uh definitely a boon um so are you i'm assuming you're planning um 
Do you have something that works for uh, ZineQuest 4? I do. I do. Um, so, yeah, let me let me talk about what I have, and then I could say sort of how I'm thinking about ZineQuest 4. So um, I don't have the fourth issue of my zine ready. Um, it, you know, it's going to be similar to the third. That is, I've done three issues of the zine through Alt-End's door, and the first and the second were standalone issues. And the third issue was a double issue that then had a, another person write a companion adventure zine, third zine for it. So it was more of a production. Through All Tan Store 4 will similarly be a double issue with a companion adventure. And, and that was just a lot to get ready in this span of time between when I was done with fulfillment and now. And I, I, I sort of had a little creative burnout actually on it. And so it took me a little while to kind of get going again. But so what I do have, which I'm pretty excited about actually, is I'm going to do this zine on um, downtime, on the, the space between adventures. Um, written primarily with a view to like kind of old school style, um, you know, um, sandbox um, exploration based uh, sort of adventuring, but this opens up the space between between adventures. Um, not a new idea, of course, but I have no. a system for it. I have a system for it. And so I have a zine that um, Evelyn Moreau illustrated, who was also like a player in my game at one point, and um, she she uh, drew the illustrations for it. And so uh, I'm I'm going to be doing I think that. Um, there is also a question in my mind. I don't think I'm going to do it, but I do also pretty much have ready to go uh, this kind of like spinoff zine, which I call Pale Echoes. The first issue and pale echoes is like my, my zine is all people may not know my zine is all like said if they haven't listened to your earlier episodes is all set in this dreamlands through a door um and that's opened all tan's door and what pale echoes is going to do the idea is it's going to be a, a spin-off zine where i present like lots of different campaign frames in the waking world and do other things too that are kind of fun to do, like talk about appendix ends of different different issues or the dreamlands in general, or just like talk about whatever I want to talk about, but also present these different kind of um, ways you could run a dreamlands game, um, focusing on the waking world. So kind of taking you the other way through all tense door, if you like, into the waking world. So I do have an issue of that basically almost ready to go, but I, I think it might be cleaner if for the next thing, I, I just did this downtime scene. I think it would, like the identity of it would be clear, wouldn't be two totally unrelated scenes weirdly yoked together. Right. Um, it wouldn't have people asking me, you know, can I get back issues? No. I can't do that right now. Um, it just wouldn't open that kind of Pandora's box. So I think I may wait for Pale Echoes to go with through Altan's Door 4. But uh, yes, so I've seen um, uh, that downtime, um, which actually I'm pretty excited about. It's in a way I'm, I'm most excited about it right now because I've been working on it recently and kind of getting it into shape and running, using it also using the material and like my my own game and stuff yeah yeah because i think for me uh blades in the dark with their downtime downtime activities with that system made me realize just how how fun if you can create a system for that how fun it can be yeah because i think the there's dark. yeah oh, go, ahead. go ahead no go ahead well, i mean like i think you know obviously there's the traditionally the downtime is you go and spend your money but that's not necessarily always that fulfilling but there's I guess it does kind of bake in training, but that doesn't, the way it's set up isn't very exciting either. So there's oh, opportunities. Sure. Yeah, there's opportunities to actually do downtime activities and make it fun. Yeah, exactly. There's so many opportunities for that. And Blades in the Dark is amazing. It's very in this. And I certainly looked at Blades in the Dark. I mean, I love Blades in the Dark. I, I haven't run it. I haven't played it, actually. I, um, but I, but I, I, think it's a really neat game and um the downtime 
is very good for that, of course. It's very focused, though, because the game is, in a way, very focused on. Oh, it's a machine. It's a machine. It's a machine on your. You know, you're building a gang. You're doing yeah. criminal enterprises that way, and whereas, kind of the um, thing that. Uh, <laughs> oh, good somebody night. came through old hand's door. Yeah, yeah. Somebody you have a came visitor. through my. I had a, a little visitor in night clothes come to say goodnight. Um, I, all I was going to say was, right, the thing about, though, that is that, um, is that it's, so, it's so focused, whereas the, what, what I kind of want is more the chaotic energy where, like the kind of D&D that I, I play is very collaboratively focused. It's like mm-hmm. people are just as a group you know, working on a single thing that they collectively decided to do. And it does, of course, have characterization emerge through play. And it's not that there can't be some tensions or whatever, but that's not the focus of the game. The focus of the game is like exploration of fantastical environments in a perilous situations. And, and, but, you know, the thing is that a lot of what grabs people also is like the individual evolution of their character. And so, you know, my, the, the system that I have really, I mean, it does allow people to work together as a group to pursue ends that kind of relate to their other activities. But I think more, it kind of lets people go their own ways in the space between adventures and get into shenanigans. Right. And, you know, and with all kinds of interactions between adventures and the space in between adventures. And it, you know, there are lots of ways of talking about it and thinking about it. Um, I've been thinking a lot about this and sort of what models for this there exist in kind of like older versions of D&D and what I don't like about them and what I do like about them and, and everything. But, but that's, yeah, so to kind of open that more as a sort of space where um, like people can kind of pursue this like kind of almost from day one, you know, from the end of the first session. They can be like thinking about like what their little like what their little piece of heaven is, or like what their just like what the thing is they want to get all into. Um, and then the fun part is making it interact with the collective adventuring kind of frame. So yeah, I have a, a sort of a system that I've I've been working on for that. Um, and yeah, so that's that's that. Yeah, it's uh so I was uh looking to um this this be a tangent, but I'll, I'll bring it back around. Um so I've been kind of looking at hex crawls. And I kind of wanted to run something with old school essentials, not really ran through any old school essentials. Uh, asked for some people some some thoughts. Uh, Ilmire, Evils of Ilmire was mentioned, and so was the Tower of the Silver Axe. And I realized then I realized I started putting this into Foundry, uh, which is a virtual tabletop. And I realized that the Evils of Ilmire is a very condensed uh, package. Like there's a year's worth of of venturing going on there. And I like I don't oh. have time to expand this. <laughs> oh. I mean, every hex has, you know, its own encounter table. Every hex has, you know, some adventure thing in it. I mean, it's like a little, it's so like a little intense mosaic of these different elements. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought, no, I don't have time for that. I looked at the, uh, and the reason I was wanting to do that, because I was looking at doing something not simpler, but along the same lines to get an idea. And then the Tower of the Silver Axe was just a little too much. And I was like, well, wait a minute. Why don't I just run uh, <laughs> through Old Ten's door? And so I've been, I've been, I've been actually uh, copying and pasting it into uh, Foundry, uh, two rooms a day, basically. And uh, so I'm really looking forward to running that, but I, I do kind of have a question. So do you run this? Do you run this as uh, with just traditional uh, fantasy characters? Um, I've I've done it in two different ways. Um, I've I've had three games in, through Alton Store. There's the original campaign, which is still going, 
it's reaching its conclusion, but it's been more than six years. I I have a uh, I had a more kind of picaresque game that was sort of uh, open table, not quite an open table, but it was like people could bring whatever characters they wanted, and so that was one uh, one thing. But but what I like to do, what I did in the first game, and what more or less, not not strictly, but basically, and what I'm doing now in a new face to face game I started, which is not using Altan's door, but is the same setting through this thing that's going to be in Pale Echoes. Um, it, I, it was a for backers. I gave it as so you would know, but Elspeth's letter, this kind of alternate premise. Um, I, I started running that with people face to face just now. I've only we're only three sessions in, but I. What, what I like to do when I have my druthers and I can set it up just how I want is I like it to be in a waking world that's not really a great place to adventure. I want the waking world, you know, to be in some way. I mean, so in the, I think the cleanest version is this new one I started where I'm just like, the waking world is like a dreary place. Basically, all you know, adventure. The people there are people who like make a space for themselves outside of these kind of system, you know, this kind of feudal systems, and they're known, but they always find a way out of the world, you know, underneath it, above right. it, to some other place. And so, you know, I kind of want that energy. Like, um, I think that's the cleanest version. If, if, if you're running, because then the idea is like all the magic is through the door so right. to speak and so you know there's just this you know kind of constant draw to that i mean i do think you need to it's best if you set up some energy so that there's like some interaction with the waking world like i think that's a source of a lot of fun i mean in the first campaign i ran i think my waking world was maybe a little too juicy but it it still wasn't really a place to adventure. It was like a very oppressive city-state, but it had a witch queen and everything and was very colorful. And I think it worked um, because it was so like kind of oppressive. You know, people mainly wanted to get out of there and keep a secret what right. they were doing. But it, it was like, um, th there wasn't like a real clean separation between the fantabulism of the dream world and the kind of dreariness of the waking world, which I, I think contributes to like sort of a sense of wonder and aesthetics of it a bit. So, um, but basically in the first campaign and this most recent campaign, in this most recent campaign, I just am sort of letting people play basic D&D classes without any demi-humans. They're just like, you know, they're human beings. It feels like what it should of, be. Like a D&Dified version of like a feudal world, um, which is really not that much fun to be in. And they have like this incredible ticket to somewhere else. You know, so that that's sort of how I'm doing it. Yeah. It almost feels like it to me. Uh, it feels like it could even really more fit into something more modern like a like you know like a like victorian england when you know things are just not so good for people that are the lower classes or it's it seems like it does seem to kind of fit to me like that would work really well but but i think is there is there a need for i guess clerics to be in a party is there a need for magic users i mean you know, like as written, there's reference to those kinds of things. I, right. I, you know, it's, I don't think there is need for it. I mean, although I have some thoughts about that, like, um, I did introduce in the third issue, um, uh, a thing that, uh, actually one of my players, who's also my collaborator, Gus created for the game when he was playing a magic user and he created this, um, kind of, I don't know, the flavor of uh, spellcaster that he called, or I call, I'm calling an opium dreamer. Um, but, but the idea there really was just that, like, th there is one way you could do the game where it's like people are 
normal in the waking world, but maybe when they go through the door. Oh, in one way or another, there's some kind of like Narnia, kind of like Narnia. Yeah, kind of like Narnia. I mean, his version was, of course, it's like people like using drugs to travel through, you know, their visions to the dreamland. So that's got a certain vibe and, and that's a little bit different. But I do think you could run all kinds of games where you had pretty much any version of the waking world you want, like you could run it in the contemporary world. I mean, I do think there is this thing, I haven't read it yet, I'm really excited to read it, but this guy, John Battle, created um, a game called um, My Body is a Cage. And the premise there, which is really interesting, check this out, if I understand it, is that the players play themselves. That is, whatever happened to them during the day is what happened to their, their character, but then they go to sleep and they enter these like you know kind of dreamscapes and dungeons and so like you know you could rock a hundred different flavors of that kind of thing um so in other words i'm saying like maybe you could have magic users and all kinds of fantastical things but maybe that's just not what they are i mean the waking i mean that's kind of fun that's sort of the dream you know that's like all these things it's like in the waking world i'm just whatever you know, just like we, just like we are, you know, like, right. I, yeah, I teach class, I grade papers, you know, I teach <laughs> classes, you know, but then like, you know, I go in, but in the dreamlands, it's not like that at all. At night or I, you know, Casper, I have it's arcane powers, strange eldritch powers or whatever it is. Um, so yeah, there are a million ways you can do this. I so I also noticed um, that so I'm assuming because I don't play a lot of old school style games, but I think the idea is, is gold is treasure you take back as XP. But uh, what I noticed is a lot of, there's a, a number of, at least where, I, where I'm at so far, which isn't very far, is uh, the fun thing is, is the stuff that's worth money is usually things that are very awkward to carry, like a large table. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, no, for sure. For sure. I mean, like my basic principle is is essentially never to leave treasure as like coins <laughs> yeah, in yeah. chess. I mean, it's just never. I mean, the Dreamlands really lends it. I mean, I think it's like one one premise. I don't really quite express this. Um, I think anywhere quite in anything I've written, although I think it probably comes through. But one thing I like to lean into in play, like in this new game where I got to start it from scratch and, and do it kind of how, how I wanted to, you know, once I had kind of thought about it all more, you know, the first thing I emphasize is just how the material culture so far exceeds anything in the waking world. Like, you know, you're in like 14th century, whatever, England or France, mm. and they've got like these art nouveau, you know, it's all like, just in, just like this incredible strange material culture that seems so decadent and you know is so far ahead of anything you could do in the waking world and so then you know it just that it makes sense that like the treasure is all like the things you carry with and and that various nice effects like one is it makes the extraction of treasure a resource management question. I think it's also just more colorful, but there are also ways that I'm building it into downtime. Like, check this out. Like, it's complicated to find buyers for things. This was an idea my friend Nick had. He created this in his game. He was using my system of downtimes and he was like, I'm going to create a downtime called finding a buyer. It's like, how do you actually sell all this stuff? And what could go wrong? Sounds like you're creating you know? travel. So like, that's like a source of, yeah there's a bit of that sure but right yeah it's like how do you right but no uh yeah that is true that uh, the um yeah and we could talk about the xp for gold um thing um you know but that's like a whole nother topic it is but i mean i was kind of noticing that you know there's no you know that seems to be a very a very um simple way of being able to award xp um, and I think you also made it in a way that's actually like, like say, you know, you're gonna carry this large table out, you're gonna make noise, you're gonna be slower, 
it 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 could lead to some comedy, you know, you know, like it gets destroyed halfway up. And it's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Yeah, no, for sure. And I also kind of wondered too, is because uh, that's the way my mind is. I thought, you know, this would might also be good to use with like the Cortex system. Hmm. Not Cortex, but uh Cypher system, uh Monty Cooks. Yeah, it, I could see that. I mean, I haven't um, dived deep into the Cypher system. I have perused, um, you know, um, sorry, what's the main one set in the ninth uh, world? Oh, Numenera? What's, Numenera. I've, you know, but my fascination with Numenera has been less the system and more um, the setting. Um, but yeah, um, so I have some familiarity, although it's not deep. Yeah, it's it's a um, it, it it's yeah, it's a pretty straightforward, simple system. Um, but I just thought you know that would also work, work well. But it, but the thing is, it changes its feel. So I think in, the, in one hand, it's like I'm not sure what you gain or lose by by doing that because definitely with the OSE or yeah, I don't think you're using OSE, but. You're no, using like some sort of BX, weren't you, for yeah, this? Yeah, but but you know, OSE is just from my point of view a better version of that. So like, all new issues will be OSE issues, and if I ever like fiddle with the text in the old ones, it'll be OSE too. So I, you know, I think OSE. You're right that it's going to be the easiest to run if you just do that. Just do OSE. I mean, it'll be easiest. I'm not saying it's the. I, Everybody has their own preferences, and I think you could run it with a lot of different things. But if you want the simplest thing, I think OSE is a great choice. Yeah, I'm not even even suggesting too that you like convert it because that's probably a fool's. I mean, there's there's a little value with your time to be doing something like that. But but it is kind of interesting where you do have a a fairly set you know evocative system. It's just be interesting to see how different mechanics would cause it to play out differently. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I guess if somebody wanted to license from you, you probably more want to just, just kidding. The uh... yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know too much. I mean, you know, some people have done things um, with it. I mean, Jason Cordova ran it using Dungeon World. Um, he talks about that a little on the first issue. Yeah, that would probably Black pretty. Dragon. Yeah, that would probably be a pretty easy one to do. That's probably right. the easiest, straightforward, without having to change much. Right. So I do think that, you know, required not too much work because, you know, but, uh, but people have tried to convert it to 5e. I think that's a much harder prospect because um, the, the machinery is so different um, underneath. I mean, you know, OSE is like very light. So yes. then it's easy to convert to something like Dungeon World or to any of the rules light. Um, sort of post OSR games like Into the Odd or Bast Electric Bastion Land or Nave or you know anything like that I think would not be too hard but but Five E like just has a lot more going on and so I think that that's like a a meteor conversion. Well, and I also think kind of going back to your point earlier about the. Well, I guess it still kind of follows. Yeah, it's just it it feels uh, it feels like BX is more deadly, and it definitely would change the feel. I think I, I agree with that a hundred percent. It's hard to die in five E. You can, but it's hard. And they, I do think the dungeons are really, really written to heighten senses of peril in like you know pretty extreme ways so i i i think like it's true that's what they're built to do they're built for it to be very high stakes <laughs> and so any any system that kind of blunts that i mean i think with dungeon world is a little bit different because you you lean into the kind of horror aspects and you go a kind of more cinematic way in a way but and I think that's it's, le it's less about the mechanics because really a lot of it is relying on the 
the GM making the moves. Right. And the players too, but yeah, that's right. Well, and they accept the, the compromises or the, yeah, exactly. the whatever. But so that's really where, you know, the, the GM side, you don't have to worry about the mechanics where with 5e, it is about the mechanics. It's way about the mechanics. I mean, 5e is built to play a certain mm-hmm. way and it's not the same way that, that, the, the BX is, is, is built to play. It's quite different. I mean, I've played it a certain amount. Not, I'm not a veteran of 5e. I played it mainly with children because, of course, my son plays and, of course, all the kids play 5e. So I've gotten into it a little bit with him and stuff, and I've certainly read the books. And I, I have a bit of a sense, not, not really of how higher levels play, but of how lower levels play. And, I mean, it's just, you know, there's a lot going on, like... Your character has so many powers. As soon as you gain levels, like people's hit points are just going way up. Um, There's just a lot more stuff happening. And it's not really built, I think, with a view to this kind of resource management, high stakes, you know, like this taught investigation of fantastic and parallel spaces. I think the other thing is, is there's also less uh, avoidance. So... You know, when you have fewer hit points and things can kill you, you're going to be more risk avoidant yeah. uh, as opposed to 5e where you're like, okay, things are balanced to a certain thing. I know what I can do. And right. I know what these people with, that are behind me, what they can cause me to do and back me up. And so I think you're, you're more willing to take everything head on where in other systems like the BXs, you're like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. Like- Generally, I mean, contemporary kind of mainstream systems you know it's like the premise is now is the time when we fight like like that's the premise and as opposed to like i'm forced to fight now or i pick my battle or it's like just go back to town sell this stuff get some other hirelings right bring them down here and we'll we'll take them on right you know it's got a less of that energy and more of the like now is the time when we fight energy (laughs) which is pretty different pretty different energy i think really yeah yeah, so I'm I'm really looking forward to that. I think it's going to be a, a fairly simple uh, thing to run on the uh, on Foundry as far as virtual tabletop. So all the ones you've ran, have they been? I'm assuming they've been virtual, or have you ran? Face-to-face? Well, I started just started running face to face with it, um, which has been really fun because I haven't done that in a very long time. But um, but uh, yes, I've done a lot of it virtually. Um, yeah. So what do you use uh, when you run it virtually? I use just um, nowadays I use Zoom because every because I have a Zoom account and everybody's using Zoom, so they're used to it. I use Zoom. I screen share a map in a, you know software that allows me to erase it. You could use GIMP. I'm using Photoshop. It's, you know, not, I'm just using it because I have it. It's not, it's not built for that. It's, it's you know, way, it's, it's very it's like funny. Using a, it's like using a laser to, you know, <laughs> whatever, cut, cut. Uh, I don't know. It's like, it's, it's way not built to do that, but it, it works. Right. So I just, I just do fog of war by, you know, erasing a fill layer on a screen share. And, um, and, I have up a whiteboard app, um, which players can roll on, or I can kind of sketch things out. Um, I have used Roll20, but it's not mainly what I use. Mainly what I use is Zoom with a screen share. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of looking forward to ready into virtual tabletop. It it's it's nice where. I think it's the right economy where you don't have to go crazy with the rooms. I mean, the, the art is evocative enough. The descriptions are enough and you can yeah. just run the combat kind of the air to the mind pretty easily. Yeah. True. Yeah. So anyway, that, yeah, I'm really looking forward. I think foundry is going to work out good. I'm just trying to, trying to get it through and then get the right people. And, um, and may see who all wants to to play, but I I think it's a good introduction. I think it's a good introduction to. I think it's a really good introduction for people who've not played role playing games before, just because of its nature. 
Well, you have to tell me how it goes. I really look forward to hearing. Yeah, so hopefully, hopefully it leads up to my expectation <laughs> or lives up to my expectation. But yeah, it's um, yeah, it's just it's just uh, I I think what I like about it is clean's not the word, but it just it feels very clean as far as it's not there's not a lot of clutter with each room description, and it's not it doesn't seem like a lot of mechanical things yeah. going on. It just seems like it's a pretty well. Um, that's what I'm looking for, but it, it, it seems yeah. very straightforward and um, easy yeah, to I, get through. I mean, I try to, you know, it, there's a lot of purple prose in those scenes and, and I definitely don't hold back. That's kind of the appeal of, of it for, for me. And I, I think also other people, but I, I do try you know, pretty hard to make it like you actually usable at the table. So I try to, you know, front load the things that, that matter in, in each room and, um, you know, kind of hive off the purple pros elsewhere and do what I can to make it actually usable. I mean, I think maybe I did a better job in the first issue than in the second issue with that. I kind of, the second issue maybe has more going on in some rooms, maybe too much, but um but you know it's a balance and you just kind of try to figure it out. I mean the thing is the second one has a lot of traps because it's like the fiendish traps of the butcher priests, you know. So then if you got a lot of traps and you want, you know, people to be able to play it strategically and kind of they're not gotcha traps, they're like right. You know, then 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 the rooms get pretty complicated like the descriptions and there are a lot of trade-offs. But yeah, I do try to make it usable as usable as I possibly can. Um, compatible with my being allowed to fly my my purple prose at full mast, you know, as much as I can, because that's something that I, I allowed myself to do in these scenes. So what what I'm doing is the founder they have what's called journals, and with the journals you can make parts of it secret. So you can so they can go to a room, I can read the room, I can re, I can give them access to the journal. Well, that's cool. And so they can go back and look at the parts I want them to look at, but they can't see the parts I don't want them to look at. That's so cool. That's really cool. So, and I think what I can do too is take each journal. I'm doing a, a journal entry for each room, and then I'll put it on the map. So as they go through the map, I'll set it up so they they will explore, and then when they see the journal, then they can click it and be able to to open it and read it. Uh, that's so um, elegant because that that solves also the problem of memory for which is such a terrible problem for role-playing games i mean of how you maintain that continuity so that people actually remember you know what they were doing when they were whatever tired drunk anyway yeah, exactly not, you know at the end or just at the end of the fifth room and they can't keep straight all the doodads and but I think with your with the purple yeah. pros, I, I didn't notice necessarily a lot so far coming in. But even if you do, it's in a journal. Somebody can go back and read it. So it's yeah, exactly. you know, on their own time. Yeah. So the other thing I would ask is, do you uh, for drive through? Could you put a uh, a JPEG of the maps mm. as individual files? Because that'd be helpful for people wanting to run virtual tabletops. Great idea. Yeah. Because um, because sure, you do will, have them, yeah. you could snag it on the PDF, right? Yeah, no, it, I could do that for sure. That's a great idea. I should totally do that. I I, I will do it. Um, yeah, you know, I haven't really. They're not optimized for drive through, you know, in a way. And so, one thing I would like to do is just generally make them more usable. Um in that kind of a context. I mean, of course it would be amazing also for there to be VTT maps and stuff. Yeah. And I think, you know, that, you know, it, that's where it comes down to resources. So either you do it yourself or you pay somebody to do it. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, right. I do pay people to do layout stuff and whatnot, but I, yeah, it's steps one step at a time, one step at a time. No, I, I think the things that would, would benefit, would be that would be of little effort would be a a the maps should be a separate file and then just doing a little booklet for uh showing the players 
That's cool. Yeah. We'll just have illustrations. Yeah, so all the illustrations would be in there with maybe just uh, tied to a number, whatever it may be, and then you could just flip. And I can just snag it. What I'm going to do is take it from the PDF anyway. That's not a big deal. But no, but that's that a memory. great. No, you're right. One step easier. Why not? I mean, it's not like that's hard to do. That's just a separate little file. Yeah. That's a great idea. No, thank you. Sure. But no, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, and I'll let you know. It looks like uh, it's getting kind of late. We're, gonna yeah. think we're hitting the, the time space continuum. Yeah, there we go. Okay, well, it's been great talking to you, Jeff. After so, it's good to loop back and do this again. I know it's just been hard. I think uh, you were you were in the throes of of whatever was going on, then I was in the throes of what was going on, and yeah, sometimes it's hard to sync up. But it's been it's been very good. So yeah, all right. Well, have a good night. You too, Ben. Take care. <laughs>